chapter 2. We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts, and through chapter 2 and the, the preaching of Peter at the Feast of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit did come down and transformed the individuals and they entered into the church age. I want to read to you, if you would follow along with me, it'll be on the screen as well, beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. For those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. It was an amazing day in the life of Christianity, in the life of the church, and the church era as it was launched there. And the question that was asked by the people that were in the crowd that was asked to Peter was, Brothers, what shall we do? The question of what do we do now is a question that all, all, all of us have asked at some point in our life, I'm sure, at different aspects, at different points, when, especially when there's something you, you held to be true, that you had maybe had been taught your entire life, and then once you were con- when you were confronted with a different set of facts, it began to, to realize that that which you thought was something or thought was true was not the way it is. It, 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 and there might be a few of you in the room that, that still haven't come over to the side of believing the, the, the earth is round. So if there are any flat earthers, I don't want to offend you, but um, most of us aren't. Anyway, there was a time, though, when everybody on the planet, or most everybody on the planet, thought the earth was flat. And then all of a sudden, the, some, some things were discovered, and some things were revealed, and some things were presented that that really flew in the face of that concept of the earth being flat, and therefore you're either going to have to choose to ignore all the facts presented to you, or hold on to, well, maybe the earth is still flat. You're confronted with a different truth, with a truth that proves that that maybe what you have held is not exactly the what you thought. You then ask the question, well, what do we do now? What do we do now? I'm just curious how many of you, and men as well, but especially ladies, because you, you may have this if you have a handbag with you, how many of you have, all right, men and women, if you have a purse or a pocket, have a, a little bottle of hand sanitizer easily, readily available right now. You, you have that. If not with you, you've got some in your car. If not in your car, you've got it at somewhere, right? So hand sanitizer, this little chemical that was, that was created, uh, I don't know, I didn't have it growing up. We used to play in the dirt and eat dirt and we survived, but nevertheless... Nowadays, hand sanitizer is a billion-dollar industry, multi-billion-dollar industry. It, it has become the punchline for, for comedians like Tim Hawkins when he talks about going into visiting a church, and in the front foyer, there's the big pump of the hand sanitizer, which, yeah, we've got there as well, but it's a punchline because it's basically saying, hey, we're so glad you're here, we just don't want to touch you. <laughs> you and your nasty germs, thank you for coming to church today. <laughs> can put it all over you. Hand sanitizer is, is everywhere. When we have our teacher um, uh, school supply drive for teachers on that want list for teachers, they have items like Kleenex, Lysol wipes, hand sanitizers, all because, and, and we provide those. And you as teachers know those are usually on the top of your list because you're, you're entering into germ warfare and you've got to, 
you got to be protected, and you want that stuff available. You want it all the time. And, and yet, um, we've kind of just, as a, as a culture, have bought into the fact that it works. Well, I was reading in the news, and I heard this on the news a couple weeks ago, and then I did some follow-up last Tuesday. I read an article in the National Law Review. There is a, a lawsuit pending. It's coming. The Food and Drug Administration is suing, or is, is, has written this letter to uh, the Dojo Industries Corporation. And, 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 and as you know, the, the reason we have hand sanitizer and we love this stuff and we use it all the time is, is because we're afraid, right? It's the coronavirus in Asia, it's influenza here, it's MRSA, it's Ebola, it's, it's whatever. I mean, we're, we're doing anything and everything we can to, to stay as healthy as we can. Church members, some of you have even said, hey, could we just kind of like nix the whole handshaking thing and just wave at other people? And I think that some of you are, are trying to say it's because of the flu season when you really just, you just don't like shaking hands with people. So I get it. So we fist bump, and we wave, and because of the fear, and, and it's legitimate, right? Especially for those that are, that are very susceptible to that. And if you get sick, it's more than just a day or two down. I mean, it's very hard. I, I'm not minimizing that at all, but we've put our faith in hand sanitizer. Well, <laughs> the FDA has, um, has sent this letter on January 17th to Gojo. I said it's Gojo. I think that's the name of it. Gojo Industries. It's a letter, that, and Gojo, by the way, if you've never heard of Gojo Industries, you can Google it, and I know some of you are now, but that's the, that's the company that makes Purell, okay? So you've probably heard of Purell, um, and there are other companies that make hand sanitizer as well, and, and yet this is why the letter was sent. <clears throat> I'll just read it to you. The letter was warning that the company needs to cease making claims that are not only unsubstantiated, but false. It seems that Gojo claimed that Purell was giving consumers the impression that hand sanitizer was a pharmaceutical product and had the ability to combat Ebola, norovirus, influenza. This is listed on the labeling. Absenteeism. I looked that up and I'm like, what is that about? That's so that your children don't miss school. And also the common cold. The industrialized world seeks cleanliness and chemicals that will keep them safe. So the label on these bodies stated kills more than 90, or these bottles stated kills more than 99.99% of most common germs that may cause illness in a healthcare setting, including MRSA and VRE. FDA said these are not only misleading and unfair, but they're not true. So the FDA has apparently had enough because they've been warning them, but now they've sent the letter. So the letter has been sent, and the, this lawsuit is going to be determined at some point. And as the Food and Drug Administration states, it says, there is no such thing as a topical antiseptic product that has ever been able to do what this company claims that hand sanitizer can do. Doesn't that make you feel better? All of you are going, why did I buy this then? Well, here's why we buy it. Even though, by the way, the CDC does say that uh, alcohol-based hand sanitizers should be used during flu season, but if you're banking on 99.99% of the germs being killed, you're believing a lie. So it leads you to the question, well, what do we do now? What do we do? Well, uh, keep pumping the hand sanitizer because ultimately the goal of it is to make your hands smell clean. But it says for germs, uh, soap and water works better. Look at that. I hate to run, oh, you pass, oh, is that candy or hand sanitizer? What are we passing around down there? <laughs> yeah, I caught you, Deborah. Um, 
If you don't have enough to share with everybody, please don't 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 bring don't bring candy. Uh huh. Deborah Zumbro for those watching at home. <laughs> so so here here here's the point that I really don't care about hand sanitizer. I mean I have some in my car. It makes me feel like I've done something. I guess it's better than nothing. Apparently not much better, but it's better than nothing. But when you're confronted with a fax or a truth that says, hey, that which we thought was really doing a big deal really doesn't do that much at all, if anything, then you have to come to realize, well, what do I do with that? I can keep buying it just because it smells good, or I can ignore it and just wash my hands, or I can just, you know, you're going to have to change your belief system. But hand sanitizer is minor. I mean, it really is. It's not as big a deal as what we're talking about in Acts 2, because while, uh, yeah, the viruses are huge and all that, you need, to, you need to definitely do something to stay safe for that. This is eternal life and death we're speaking of here. And in Acts chapter 2, here's why I use that illustration to bring this point to, to mind. Because you have a crowd of people that have arrived in Jerusalem for the feast of, or the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost. They have done this every year, and they are there to celebrate this as they have. And they are, at this point, Doing like what, doing what we do when we have a routine and we have something we do annually. Some of you here have annual trips to certain places. You go there. You know what to do. You've been there before. You have expectations. They've been to Jerusalem before at the very same time of year. They have expectations. But all of a sudden at this moment, they're confronted with something they did not expect. And what they're confronted with is the truth of the gospel proclaimed from an apostle who is now a preacher named Peter in a crowd that has gathered and when they hear the gospel presented and the truth presented as it has been through the Holy Spirit empowering this man, they are then left to ask this question. What do we do now? What do we do now, now that we know something we didn't know prior? What do we do now, now that what we thought was all set and secured has been changed and is shifted because we hear you, we believe you, but what's next? What do we do now? Peter and the apostles had been baptized by the Holy Spirit of God in this amazing moment that we read a few weeks back. They're speaking the message of the gospel to a crowd. They preach what, as I said last week, and as John alluded to, that Jesus really did live, he really did die, he really did rose again, and he really is coming back someday. And so they are waiting for that moment, and they are asking this question when the truth boldly proclaimed to them, brothers, what shall we do? This, the scriptures tell us that thousands came to hear the message preached. Just let that sink in. This is so hard in a modern American, Western, evangelical, Christian perspective to get this. There were no commercials on television. There were no radio advertising. There was no newspaper ad. There was no social media blast. Nothing of the sort advertising the next coming revival services or a special conference featuring Peter. Be sure you have your tickets and arrive to Jerusalem on the right day. There were no direct mail pieces to the people in the community. There were no vendors sitting outside of where Peter was preaching selling t-shirts that declared the conference name and the event name. There was no one selling either music or downloadable music or CDs of the band that performed that day. There were no celebrity pastors arriving with their entourages. No photo ops of the governor of the region. No bands filling the city for the largest Christian event in the history of the world. That's what it's like today. 
But that's not what happened then. But what is happening then is the largest Christian event in the history of the world. Now, I get it. The Christianity story has just launched. So any event they do is going to be the largest. But it was the largest Christian event in history. And the draw wasn't Peter. It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't the great band or the music. It wasn't all the other groups that are going to hear it, and I don't want to miss out. The draw was the Holy Spirit of God speaking through God's man who was preaching a challenging, convicting, and heart-wrenching sermon that required a response. And in verse 37, it says the people were cut. Look at this, verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now here's the question. What cut the people to their hearts? I mean, it says it right there, they were cut to the heart. What did that? What was so powerful that a response was required, that a change was commissioned, that a transformation would occur? What cut them to the heart was the Word of God. Not the eloquence of the speaker. Not the amazing props on stage. Not the fanfare or the smoke machines or the lights. Nothing produced by an event coordinator. But simply, the Word of God. That was true then, it is still true today. Even in our conference, concert, celebrity-focused world today, it is still true. I'm not anti-conference or anti-conference, but I'm telling you, conferences and concerts and special events and ticketed things that Christians go to, that I go to, those things don't cut you to the heart. Those things can lead you to an emotional moment of celebration and even worship. But if the Word of God is not declared rightly to the crowd that is gathered that day, the heart will not be cut and lifelong transformation will not occur. You just have an event that you can put on a, your calendar that you went to, and it was wonderful. The Word of God cuts to the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the writer says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Therefore, we should not be surprised that the people in Acts 2 were cut to the heart. Why? Because Peter was preaching God's Word. He quoted Joel 2, he went to Psalm 16, he went to Psalm 110, and then he preached the Gospel of Jesus Christ, though he didn't preach it out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, because they had just lived it, and that had not yet been put pen to paper yet. He preaches the Word, and he speaks of the Word, and the Holy Spirit uses God's Word to cut the hearts. It was not simply Peter's interpretation either. But according to verse 4, it was the Holy Spirit himself filling Peter and giving him the words to speak as he preached. So what we know is this. It was not the sword of Peter that, you, that was being used in this message. Peter had a sword and he had used it prior. Do you remember that story? Peter's sword is effective for cutting off ears. The sword of the Spirit is effective for piercing the heart. A little open heart surgery was taking place there in the middle of Jerusalem. 
And when the hearts of the crowd were pierced and they were cut open, there was then the opportunity to remove that which had caused them to be what they were and to replace it, as it says in Ezekiel, with a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. A heart made after God that would honor Him, that would worship Him. A new heart. This is where you kind of get that whole concept of that uh, story of I've asked Jesus into my heart. I mean, I mean, you get that, right? It's the Holy Spirit who resides within us. But it is the surrender of oneself to God, to Christ, through the repentance of sin, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration and drawing of ourselves that we are transformed in the name of Christ. And that's what was happening at this moment. But I love the question. Brothers, what do we do? What do we do? Now that we know, what do we do? You've told me the truth, but what do I do with it? And the question of humanity is the same question then as it is today. When you're presented with the truth, what do you do? Well, there are basically, I think, three things that Peter covers in this sermon. One, you have to acknowledge the need. They're basically saying, I need, Peter, what you're speaking of. What do I have to do to receive it? The need for a Savior is presented by Peter. The pierced hearts of the people have left them open and exposed to the truth. They now acknowledge the reality of their own sin. These are people that, by the way, these are people trying to be righteous and good. I mean, don't, don't miss who these folks are. These are good religious people that at least annually have arrived to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost and the celebration of this holy, holy time. These are the good neighbors that you would have in your community. These were the upstanding individuals. These were the moral people. These were the ones that as good as they could be realized at this moment their goodness was not good enough. This was the cut heart moment. And at that moment they're like, these are people that have lived their entire life under the Old Testament living under the law, which is right to this moment, but never knew, never realized that the Old Testament, the law, was a precursor to the age of grace. And when grace is presented to them, they are recognizing that Christ is not one who came to abolish the law, but in himself fulfilled it, and now offers full life, abundant and free, to those that would receive it. And so these are not the from a, from a human perspective, the bad guys that turn over the new leaf. These are, the, from a human perspective, the good guys who realize they're never going to be good enough. The crucifixion is history to us as we read it in the gospel accounts. We think about it. We try to imagine what it looked like, but it was not ancient history for this crowd. It was just a few months prior Jesus' crucifixion was recent news. His trial was quick. They were probably still talking about it. His execution was public. Many had seen it. And things changed dramatically on the day that Jesus was crucified. The noonday looked like midnight. There was a huge curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from others, and it was torn from top to bottom to make access for all. And then as weird as it is, we don't talk about this one much, but a bunch of dead people jumped out of their graves and started walking around town. I mean, walking dead is not a new concept. This happened. It's weird. It's supernatural. And it took place on that day. You can read it. 
You know, usually Easter, we just kind of skim over that one because it's confusing, but it happened. Uh, you know, just something about where Jesus shows up, it's hard to stay dead. And they're all over town. And people had seen him. I don't know what more to do with that one. It just, it always blows me away when I think of it. But that moment of Jesus' crucifixion was horrendous. And they knew it. But fortunately, he rose again. The Holy Spirit reveals that to those in the crowd through the teaching and the preaching of Peter. And some had even seen Jesus physically and knew he was back. The crowd was convicted. And they had realized at this moment that their regularly performed religious rituals would never be enough. And for those in the crowd, denying that Christ existed was futile. They knew it. Avoiding the truth was impossible. They were broken. Their good living would never be enough. They knew it. And what a wonderful thing it is when a person can no longer resist the Word of God and the Spirit of God and simply must say, God, what do I do next? And Peter answered. You have to accept the need or acknowledge the need. You've got to accept the gift. Look at this verse in verse 38. In fact, let's put 38 up there. I want to leave it on the screen for a while. If you're watching at home and you have your Bible next to you, get Acts chapter 2, verse 38. We're going to reference this one for quite a bit. It says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So just a little, uh, let me see how much time I've got. All right, I've got a little time. We're going to break this one down. Let's look at gift of the Holy Spirit. Just leave the verse on the screen for me. Gift of the Holy Spirit. The word translated gift or transliterated to gift in English is the Greek word doria. It means unmerited, free, no hidden fees, no fine print, no way to earn this. It is a free gift. And in this case, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit. But listen carefully here. I want to make sure you understand what's being spoken of here. This is not a separate gift from the gift of salvation. And there are some that, that understand it differently. We, we see the Scripture very clearly in this. That at the moment an individual, those that are in the room, those watching at home that are believers, when you became a Christian, you at that moment of surrender and salvation were baptized by the Holy Spirit. You at that moment received the gift. And it's a gift because you didn't deserve it. So this concept of I got saved and then I lived a while and then I got a second blessing and the Holy Spirit baptized me later is not in accordance to what Scripture teaches. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, people say, do you believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I say, absolutely I do. I just don't believe it's something that takes place after you get saved and then it's manifested by a gift that is a minor gift. I believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as it's revealed in Scripture, is the gift of the Holy Spirit that is given to those who surrender and have that new birth moment, and that baptism takes place at that moment. So let's make sure we're there. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, <clears throat> here's a little confusion in this one. Because if you back up, oh, let's go to this one too. I'll, I'll just touch on this one. This one's, this one's a freebie. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. I've told you this before, but for some maybe have not heard it, so we'll just we'll clarify this. Baptism was not a foreign concept to the first century Jewish world. It was happening all the time. For many, many years, the Jews had, and still are, were being baptized. It's called a mikvah baptism, a mikvah bathing pool. They are, the, the practice was, uh, and I'm sure uh, some of my Orthodox friends could correct me on this, but just very generally, you, they would enter into a, a covered, private 
baptistry or bathing area, disrobe, dunk themselves, immerse themselves, not sprinkle, immerse. Uh, Some have said even done it three times, which I would say looks very Trinitarian to me, but nevertheless. And the common practice in the first century was to be baptized in the name of your rabbi. So if you're a young Jewish person that lives up in Nazareth and Rabbi Benjamin is your rabbi, then you're going to go into the mikvah before you enter into the temple and you're going to get dunked in the water in the name of Rabbi Benjamin, my teacher. If you live in uh, another area and maybe Rabbi Joshua is your rabbi or your lead teacher and you would go in the name of my teacher. Jesus said in the Great Commission as disciples of his, we are to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peter affirms it in being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is not a contradiction just because he didn't mention Father and Spirit. It is the concept of the one God, the Godhead, and the ultimate point is this, that from here on out, Christians, when you're baptized, you're not baptized in the name of your pastor, you're not baptized in the name of your daddy, you're not baptized in the name of, your, of your, some teacher on the internet, you're baptized in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in accordance to the Word. So that shifted the whole concept of mikvah bathing. But here's something else a little confusing. In English, I don't know if you know, it looks like this, because this is English. And whether you're reading it in the King James, the New King James, the CSB, the HCSB, or the ESV, or New American Standard, you're going to see it transliterated very much like this. And that word that causes quite a bit of confusion is a little three-letter word after Jesus Christ. Four. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For that we go, yeah, I got that. For the forgiveness of your sins. And that causes quite a bit of confusion and has for many centuries. Why? Well, in English, you're looking at it, it makes it appear that it is saying, in order for you to be a Christian, you have to repent and be baptized. You have to be baptized to be a Christian. Now, I'm a proud Baptist, so I'm not going to to minimize the step of baptism. But, let's look at what the word is. The word translated as for is the Greek word ice, which would be E-I-S, not I-C-E, but ice, that's how it's pronounced. It's a transliteration, and in this passage, and it's used in every one of the English translations, it's not a mistranslation of the word. But it means many things like for, at, toward, unto, into. And at a cursory reading, out of context, by ignoring dozens of other New Testament passages, it would be very easy to say, yeah, you've got to be baptized to be a Christian. It just contradicts quite a few other passages. Quite a few. And since we know God is not the author of confusion, and we know God's Word ultimately does not contradict itself, though some lay claim that it might, we would say that can't be what that means then. And so this causes quite a bit of confusion. There is a teaching known that by some of our, our loved ones and our friends that it's called baptismal regeneration. Now, you may have never heard that big word, baptismal regeneration, but there are a number of denominations that hold to that. We do not. Baptismal regeneration is basically stating that the baptismal waters are an essential part a sacrament that's needed for salvation so you play that out to the nth degree so let's just say like for right now 
that, that we're, re, we're fixing the baptistry. There's a leak, so they've had to strip it down. There's no water in our baptistry right now up here. But what if somehow, what if today, someone in this room prayed to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit drew them, they gave up, they said, what must I do? You did what you must be done. You've repented, you've received him. And yet, um, uh, we're going to baptize you, but there's no water there, so now uh, what's our option? I guess the retention pond. So we're going to the retention pond. That'll keep many, hey, you know, come on now. He died for you. You can get baptized in mud. It ain't no problem. There's only one gator out there. It ain't going to hurt you. But let's say, let's say you have a heart attack before we can get you out there and you die right in the parking lot. To hold a baptismal regeneration declares that your dead body in the parking lot is where your soul left and now you're in eternal damnation because you were not saved. Because you didn't get baptized. You see where the conflict ends. So how does this work for baptism? Well, well here's a, a very simplified, probably overly simplified and and, and, and let me just go ahead and declare, um, you know, if you disagree with this, I'm probably not going to debate you, nor am I going to respond to your email. I will send you links, and you will send me links, and that's probably where it'll end. This is what we hold to be true. We believe the Bible is clear in this. Look at it this way. Say you're a teacher, and a child comes into your classroom late, and you scold them for being late. Let's think of that, scolded for being late. Or maybe it's a, there's a woman, that I mean, she's in a beauty patch, she's a beautiful woman, and she is praised for her beauty. Or maybe there's a thief who robs something, they're arrested for stealing. Same word for, but there's an understanding that the woman is not beautiful only after someone praises her. The person is not a thief only after they're arrested. The student is not late only after they got, they showed up, uh, they got scolded by the teacher. So in a sense, the person is not saved only after they were baptized. But baptism is important and it is vital. And so don't hear me dumbing it down and saying it's not a big deal. I think it is a huge, huge deal. It's just not salvific. There are dozens of New Testament verses contradicting the concept of baptismal regeneration by revealing it is faith alone, no additional steps, no additional works required. To accept God's forgiveness is to believe in faith that Christ is the Son of God, God the Son, the Redeemer and the payment for all of sin. The gift of life is given to all who would believe. That belief leads to obedience through repentance and obedience in baptism. This is more than belief as an acknowledgement of existence, but a belief that leads to action. We go to Paul's words to the Ephesian church in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. If baptism is added to salvation, it is adding just as if you're adding another good work. And Paul declares, by the way, it's not just Paul. People say, well, Paul said this, Paul said that. The Holy Spirit said this through Paul, and the Holy Spirit said that through Peter, and he's the same Holy Spirit not contradicting himself. Accepting God's forgiveness is a humbling thing. It is a free gift to receive and cannot be earned. It is not a work you or I do, but a belief leading to repentance. Let me just say, 
The crowd that heard Peter preached, preached that day, they knew good works, and many of them had a, a backpack full of them. They've done many good works. In fact, most of them had already been baptized. Just the, not the baptism spoken of here. Belief leading to repentance is turning away from sin. Baptism is the proclamation of all that you are now a believer. So that the Father is glorified in you and your eternity is secured in your faith through God's grace. Not only acknowledging the need and accepting the gift, but acting on the truth. This amazing moment led to 3,000 people being baptized that day. 3,000 people added to the church that day. This is an understanding, too, that we need to hold true, that there is no such thing as a secret conversion. Baptism is public. Even in our countries around the world where it's illegal for a person to convert, their baptisms are not... You say, well, that's a secret baptism. They did it at home. You know what? You know who was gathered around? and that, They all promised not to post it online, but the church was gathered as the baptism took place. They've seen it. They know it. They've declared it. And in this case, 3,000 were baptized. And this is, the, this is confusing, too, because where, where things don't necessarily evenly or easily fit, confusion falls in. For years, theologians and Bible scholars have argued about this chapter. They have looked at the word 3,000, believing it perhaps was mistranslated because of this very reason. Jerusalem doesn't have a lot of water. Oh, the Jordan River's nearby, but it's not that big and it's not that close from where they were. And for 3,000 that have come to the city for a celebration of Pentecost to immediately be baptized is a question that made them say, that probably didn't happen, it couldn't have happened, there's not that much, many places for them to go. If they stayed in the hotels, the pools were probably closed. I mean, you know, there's just not a place. Lo and behold, a number of decades ago, Jewish archaeologists began digging on the southern side of the Temple Mount. And on those southern steps, and some of you have been there with me, you have seen the dozens of mikvah pools that have been unearthed. And the Jewish scholars and the Jewish archaeologists and those that have been working on that have put labels on it and descriptors, and, and, and I've been there a number of times. They have a little movie they show you that's supposed to take you back in time where this guy shows up in the first century during the temple era, and he goes and he, he buys a, a, a lamb, I think, for his sacrifice, and then he, he goes over to this other area, and he, he enters into this little private bathing area, removes the robe, and he disappears, and and he baptizes himself in that mikvah pool, and he comes out. And it's just one of those little movies. You know how every museum has one of those little 10-minute movies? That's that. I, I think I, I messed up. I saw the German one one time. I had no idea what they were saying. you got to pick the right language. you got to get the right time. But the good thing is I'd already seen it, so I knew how it ended. The man got baptized, and he went into the temple. And it's to show you the temple. But as a Christian, I'm looking at that, and I'm going, look at that. Jesus did the same thing with the Passover meal. He didn't destroy it. He reinterpreted it, and we celebrate it as the Lord's Supper today. And for centuries, Jews were being baptized so that when baptism had to happen and John the baptizer shows up, it's something they were familiar with, but there's something different about what John says. And then when Jesus and his followers show up, and it's his followers who baptize in his name, all of a sudden it's a revelation that baptism that we have done all our lives 
now means something much more, and I'm no longer baptized every time I come to temple, every time I'm showing up, every time in the name of my rabbi, but once and for all in the name of my Savior. And that's what happened that day. And it was for themselves and the propagation of faith back in their hometowns and families. For if you remember, this is an incredible time. It's almost like God knew this was a good time to do this. All these people had traveled to Jerusalem for the feast, for the Pentecost celebration. And they would stay there a while, but then where are they going to go? They're going to eventually go back home. And all of a sudden you have, in a matter of days, the launching of the era of the church with the preacher, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit filling the teachers and preachers. The church era begins, and then, that's, by the way, the greatest Christian event ever in the history, right? That, that moment. And then, the first great missionary movement as these new 3,000 believers are sent back to their homes to tell their wives and to tell their children and to tell their neighbors about what they have heard and what has happened to them. And not only do you see a message at a moment, you see a movement begin. Verse 39 says, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And it's an incredible story that all began with a question. Today's part all began with a question. What do we do now? And today's sermon ends with the same question. What do we do now? For the non-believers in the room that have never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, never repented, never, never stepped through in faith and received that gift, it's the same answer. Acknowledge the need for a Savior. Accept the forgiveness of sin available only through a resurrected Christ and act on the truth revealed in Christ through the Holy Spirit within you and be baptized in obedience. Be an obedient doer of the word, not a hearer only. And be a disciple maker. What do we do with this? We do that. For the unbeliever, and there may be a few, that's my challenge and my call to you today. It's really not mine, it's the Holy Spirit's. Because, by the way, in case you didn't know this, The Jewish crowd in Jerusalem in Acts 2 got saved the same way the Gentile crowd in Orange Park would get saved in 2020. Through the salvation, through the repentance, and the drawing of the Holy Spirit for the glory of the Father and the good of you. Through repentance and following through with baptism. I look at these things, and in case you didn't know this, let me be clear, I am a Christian. I don't know if I've said that yet. Sometimes it's presumed. I'm a Christian. What I've done is I acknowledged years ago a need for a Savior. Got that. I actually accepted the forgiveness of sin through Christ alone and was born again as a young man, as a young boy. I did that. I've got number one and two taken care of. And then in acting on the truth revealed through the Holy Spirit, I was obedient in baptism and I was baptized. I was immersed, I was dunked as a symbol of that new life in Christ. But I also understand this, that that was my first step of obedience, not my last one. And there may be some other Christians in the room today that are realizing today that the baptism was a first step of obedience, not supposed to be your last step of obedience, 
and the, the charge and the call to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word, requires that we live as missionaries wherever God has placed us for the sake of the gospel. And you say, well, I need to tell my friends about Christ. Can I have them call and talk to you? No. Well, you can, but you shouldn't. They should talk to you. Well, I don't know what to say. I might mess up. Here's what you say. Hey, friend, you need to acknowledge the need. You need to accept the forgiveness and repent of your sin. And you need to act on this and be obedient. I think we've made coming to Christ harder than it's supposed to be. I know it's not easy to give up control. I know that's super hard. But it's not a class. It's not a class in memorizing the entire Old Testament before you can become a Christian. It is repenting and believing and surrendering. For those that have been dropping white ping pong balls representing the friends of ours that are unbelievers, you need to understand that that's what they need to do too. Acknowledge, accept, and then act. And until they do, we just keep asking. But if you're in the room today and you've never received Christ, you've never accepted that, or maybe this, maybe this, maybe you're a Christian, no doubt you're going to heaven. But there are a lot of doubts sometimes about your walk with Christ and, and maybe it's just been revealed to you today as some of our brothers and sisters have revealed to me in the past that it's not that you're not a Christian, it's that your baptism never happened or you did it out of order. Well, I was baptized as a baby. That's great. That's parent dedication. That's fine, but that's not believer's baptism. Well, I was sprinkled. That's wonderful. It's just not biblical baptism. Have you ever been baptized in obedience to God's word and declara public declaration of who you are in him? And I'll just say, it's really hard to live an obedient life as a follower of Christ when you refuse to take the first step. 